This is Chapter 77 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we meet an author who turned his time in the military into a heart-stopping thriller. And we have a fact-filled and thought-provoking discussion with John Lloyd of the BBC quiz panel show, QI. Fact becomes fiction in the debut novel from Army vet Sean Parnell. Man of War taps into Parnell's time spent in combat in Afghanistan, and he admits there's a little bit of him in his main character, Eric Steele. He stopped by to talk to our Pat Farnack about the book and his new mission. Thank you for being here, but more importantly, Thank you for your service. Uh, you're welcome. It, it was an honor to serve this great country. You saw combat in Afghanistan and, and your book, Man of War. It, it was terrifying. It was very fast moving and it was authentic as well. With all you've been through, is there a part of you that really had to put everything down on paper and write this book? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with my first book, Outlaw Platoon, was nonfiction. It was about my time there, right? Mm. It was just about my experience. But I, I realized uh, the importance for, you know, fiction reaches a different audience, and I wanted to reach a different demographic of people to give them a sense of what combat was really like, and they, you know, give them give them the thrill ride. You know, it's a fat, like you said, I tried to make it as fast a moving book as humanly mm. possible. I mean, it's really plot driven. Um, but yeah, I mean, I wanted them. I wanted to take my experience in combat in Afghanistan and write it in a, in a in a sort of fantastical fiction way and turn the volume up to 10 on everything and see what see what I could come up with. And that's that's what that's what a lot of the large sweeping action sequences in Man of War are exactly that. Like I've jumped out of an airplane before, but I've never done it at 50,000 feet with a advanced DARPA helmet on like looking like Iron Man, you know. So um, I just tried to ratchet everything up a bit in this book and, and, and Man of War is the product. Did it make you feel better or worse? I mean, after you went through all the edits and the and the the drafts, did you heave a sigh of relief, or did it make you relive everything again? It's, it's such it's such a great question. I think writing in a lot of ways is therapeutic. You know, I, when I for Man of War, it's like you take you're taking a lot of these experiences out of yourself. You're putting them on the page, and so they're no longer inside you anymore. And then other people read them, and and then in doing so, help you carry this burden that you've got to carry around. That that that, that you know, war war is something that's with you all the time. And so it's nice to have a little bit of help uh, when people read and understand a little bit more about what it's like. And so as far as the edits go, I mean, Man of War is a book that took me four years to write, and I had to start from scratch four separate times just to get it right. I mean, learning to be, you know, being being a good writer is not enough, right? Like there are plenty of good writers out there that can write amazing editorials or opinion, you know, mm-hmm. op-eds or whatever. But you have to be a good storyteller and you have to learn learn the ropes. And so it took me four years to sort of get it right and start from scratch each time, but I'm getting there. But the story was sort of percolating in your in your head while you yeah. were over there. Yes. Wasn't it? Yeah. I, I, you know, Eric Steele, the name was inspired by one of my brigade commanders who was like, I mean, I remember he came into Afghanistan like eight months there. I ended up meeting him eight months there. He was like 6'10", had mm-hmm. this booming voice. His last name was Steele. I'm like, well, boy, isn't that just perfect to have your last name Steele and be that big and that strong and in the Army and be a Ranger. It's like it's like the perfect storm. I'm like, if I, if, you know, <laughs> if I ever come up with a book or ever get out of here alive, and I, I'm going to name my main character Steele because it's just awesome. <laughs> it's so so I did. I did. <laughs> it's, a, it's such a good story, so scary, and, and there are so many real-life parallels today, right? Plenty of layers to your story. 
how would you give a, a sketch of the story for people who want to pick up Man of War? Well, I mean, so I asked myself before writing this book, okay, what what is the scariest thing that that I could write about? If a bad guy was going to attack this country, what would he do, and how? And what would be the the scariest way? And I just thought, like, the whole concept of man portable nuclear weapons is something that has been on my mind since I've been in Afghanistan. And the reason why is part of our aid package that goes to Pakistan is is meant for physical security of their nuclear weapons. And for years, Pakistan was driving their nuclear weapons to different facilities in the backs of trucks just to keep the Pakistani Taliban guessing, right? And I just thought to myself, like, how has how has a nuclear bomb not gone missing at this point? It, it, the, in the end of the Cold War, the Soviets had 60 man-portable nuclear weapons. There's no, only 57 are accounted for. Where are the other three? And there are 60-some pounds. You can carry them in a backpack, I mean, what's what is stopping somebody from getting one of those and walking them into a stadium anywhere in the world? It's it's the nightmare scenario. It's like finding a needle in a stack of needles. And I wanted to like sort of write that in a story somehow and tie it into this sort of like I, I love I love mentor turned enemy type stories, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's Star Wars or Batman Begins or something that's deeply personal about those kinds of stories that we can all relate. We always wonder like you always wonder like if we've all had mentors in our life and you always mm-hmm. wonder, am I ever gonna be that good? You're like, am I ever gonna reach that level? And so when you have your your hero fighting against somebody that is better, more experienced, it just it it's just more exciting. And so um I think Man of War I think Man of War really you know, explains the nightmare scenario and and what it would mean like if a nuclear bomb was smuggled onto to U.S. territory. I'm trying to shift gears a little bit, I have to ask you: What is a silver faux hawk that one of your <laughs> your minor characters has? Is that what I think it is? Yes. Well, a faux hawk, of... a faux hawk isn't a straight mohawk. Like in the eighties, oh. you would see like their shaved heads right yeah. on the side and the yeah. big mohawk along the. That is a that is a traditional mohawk. A faux hawk is when you have about this much hair on the sides and your hair is gelled up into a. Oh, so I a have fake, seen them. A fake mohawk. Faux hawk. Faux hawk. You see okay. what I did there? Yeah, I do. I I'm very there? impressed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the president in your book, Man of War, has certain secrets to keep. And it's so interesting that you're writing this book is coming out when Fear by Bob Woodward is coming out. Yeah. yeah. Comment on that? Well, I mean, it, you know, I think something that I wanted to do in this book was I didn't want it just to be a door kicking action book. Right. That's great. But I think there always needs to be a sense of political intrigue in the characters, especially in the halls of Congress. Like it's sort of like Jason Bourne meets House of Cards. Right. You want to see how this main character navigates through these decisions that are being made way above his level. And I always like to see like a decision is made in the executive office. How does that affect the guy on the ground? And so, yeah, there there it's there is a lot of smoke and mirrors in this book. And 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 really it's not unlike what we're experiencing in our culture today. And and whether you're a Republican or Democrat, there are politicians always show just a just a tip of the iceberg of what their true intent is. And so um you know something that has always been on my mind is 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 you know having been on the ground in Afghanistan, I always wondered what the impetus for some of the decisions and sending us on some of the missions that we've been on came from. And so I wanted to sort of explore that in this book. Mm-hmm. To uh, great effect, I might add. Thank, thank you. Uh, thank now, you. 9-11 just passed the mm-hmm. uh, observance of its 17 years. And now in Afghanistan, uh, 
it seems that things are ramping up again after 17 years. So true. Your feelings. Well, I feel like we're not on the right path in Afghanistan. We've been there for 17 years. Uh, our mission has changed two or three times. We were, we, we were implementing a counter-terror strategy in Afghanistan mm-hmm. to great effect very early on, which, which basically means p- pinpointing the worst of the worst, finding them, either capturing or killing them. And in doing so, given the, given the government time to expand their reach and secure their people— we shifted strategies somewhere around 2007, 2008, and, and implemented the strategy that we were using in Iraq, which is more a counterinsurgency strategy. The problem with that strategy in Afghanistan is that Afghanistan can barely be considered a nation. It's so tribal. That most people don't even realize in that country that they live in a country called Afghanistan. So counterinsurgency, you like people have to have a sense of nationalism and pride in their country for a counterinsurgency strategy to work, to sort of take the reins on their own. It's not going to happen in Afghanistan. So in order for us to be successful there, we have to, we, we need to change strategies yesterday and we need to get back to fewer troops, highly targeted missions to go after the worst of the worst, just to give the government a little bit of a buffer, keep the enemy guessing and slowly allow the government of Afghanistan to take the reins. Otherwise, we will be there for the next 50 years, just like we are in Korea. I was going to say, can we leave ever? We can. Part part of me, there's always a part of me that every morning I wake up and say, what was this for? What was I there for? You know, because precisely because the mission has not been clearly defined, even, you know, early on, it was like find and kill Osama bin Laden. Right now. Now what? Right. And so I. Part of me every morning wishes that we could wake up and pull out of that country. But there's another part of me that says, you know what, like tens of thousands of little girls are in school right now in that country because we're there. And if we leave, what happens to them? If we leave, what happens to all the women that came out of the houses and working on American bases and, and, and people that were friendly to this country? What, what good is an American promise if we leave those people wavering? And I, I just can't, I can't reconcile that. You're involved with the American Warrior Initiative. Um, would you describe the program and and also tell me if it helps you in any way deal with Afghanistan? Yes. Continuing oh, yeah. On? Yeah. I, the American Warrior Initiative is something that I, I co-founded with a very close friend of mine. Her name is Louise Thaxton, and she is just the fieriest businesswoman you could ever possibly imagine. She's amazing. But um Yeah, the whole purpose of the program is to educate, inspire, and give back to our military. The educational portion is just finding employers and teaching them what it means to work with the military with excellence and teach them a little bit about military culture. And then the giving back portion is what we do is we we find what we've started doing a lot in the last year and a half is getting service dogs into the hands of veterans. And that... It's really it's a big deal because the wait list veterans will wait 10 years for a service dog oh. and they cost $25,000 so they can't afford them anyway. So what we do is we have a look at that list and then we come in, we find a dog, we pair it with a veteran and we pay for it. And we get these dogs into the hand of these vets really fast and and you wouldn't believe that the bond is tangible. When you see them unite on stage, you can see an immediate change in the veteran's demeanor. It just feels oh, like bet. it just feels like somebody has their back, you know, mm-hmm. and that dog's with them everywhere. It just changes it saves lives. Changes lives and saves lives. So it it in it absolutely does help me to have another mission 
after having because I was medically retired in Afghanistan, and it's 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 great to still serve something a little bit greater than myself, and you know, focus on the horizon on that mission, just like I did in Afghanistan. How can we get involved if we want to help? You can go to the AmericanWarriorInitiative.com. We've got an awesome website, and we've got an application process for veterans. It's real simple, and the veteran themselves they don't have to apply. So if you know a veteran that's out there that you feel like needs needs help, or just needs a family grant or some emergency assistance, just go on there and apply for them. And we, we have a program, we have vet, an all-veteran team that looks at these applications, vets the vet, and we reach out to you, and we go from there, find an event where we can present, like, you know, have a move-that-bus-type moment, and it's move real simple. Bus. Yeah, we don't we don't have, a, the whole purpose of the American Warrior Initiative and the way it's structured is we don't have a lot of bureaucratic red tape, the, because we need to move fast in a lot of cases, because a lot of these veterans are really struggling, so... Mm-hmm. If you have somebody out there that needs help, have them look us up, and, and we got your back. Did you say AmericanWarriorInitiative.com? Yep, AmericanWarriorInitiative.com. Okay. Um, anything else you'd like to say? It's been real pleasure talking with you Likewise. today about a man of war or about the American Warrior Initiative. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of ways to bridge the gap between you know, veterans that protect this country and civilians that enjoy that freedom. And I think that we're at a really tough time in this country where civilians are really far away from those who protect freedom every day. And I think part of the reason why I wrote Man of War was to try to bridge that gap a little bit and write a character that embodies the greatness of the American warrior ethos so that Americans know a little bit more about like the code of the warrior, right? Why we do what we do. And if Americans understand that a little bit better, it brings us closer to the people that we protect every day and ultimately makes this country better. So if you're interested in, a, you know, I feel like a fast moving story and, and you're interested in veterans issues, you know, please pick up a copy of the book. It would be an honor. And it was an honor talking to you today. Thank Sean. you. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having me. All right. We're talking with uh, Sean Parnell, author of Man of War, a novel. Everything we don't know could fill many more books than the stuff we actually do know. But John Lloyd and the team at the BBC quiz show Quite Interesting, that's QI for short, are working to close the gap. They've put out two new books, the third QI book of General Ignorance and 1,342 Quite Interesting Facts. They're both jam-packed with all sorts of stuff you've been wondering about and stuff you didn't know you wanted to know about. John and I recently had an early morning chat about the books, and it took an unexpected philosophical turn. Why don't you first tell me what sparked your interest in this subject of interesting facts? Well, this is a big subject, Lisa. I uh, was, I I can say this now because I'm a different person than I was um, 25 years ago. I was a conventionally very successful television producer in the UK and uh, won lots of prizes. And, you know, I was very focused, hardworking, a diligent, ambitious kind of guy. Um, and, and then I got married and had children. And the children started to ask me questions like, why is the sky blue? And uh, one of my son once asked me, Daddy, does God look after burglars? <laughs> and you can find out why the sky is blue. It's called the, it's a thing called the Rayleigh scattering. It's about the different wavelengths of light as they come through the atmosphere. So I knew that one. But does God look after burglars? That's a difficult question. And another question, he said, Dad, he said, you know, you always say to me, if you watch too much television, you'll get square eyes. And I said, yes. 
And he said, well, why don't they make an eye-shaped television and then you could watch as much as you wanted? So it sent me into this spiral of confusion. I suddenly, I woke up one day, it was Christmas Eve, uh, uh, the year I was 42, and I thought, I don't know anything about anything. I don't understand how a hydrogen atom works. I don't even know what an atom is. You know, I, I don't know what's weather. How does that work? You know, how does... How on earth do you bring up children? Nobody tells you until you have them. You have to learn as you go along. And so I got into a bit of a crisis state. And I was fortunate at the time. I was directing television commercials, so I had lots of time. I was, frankly, overpaid for the job. And I started reading a lot of physics initially and then maths. And from there I got into uh, Pythagoras and Greek philosophy and and my whole world changed. I just couldn't believe that all the things that I thought I knew, I didn't know. And so over the years, I've heard about 10 years in this state, reading and thinking, and I thought, if I find this stuff as interesting as I do, I'm a teleproducer by trade, you know, I'm sure other people must feel the same way. And so that's where it really began about the turn of the millennium. So you mentioned, you talked a little bit about the started out reading. Did you write things down as you came across them and like, oh, this one's really good? Did you start like your own almanac of collecting these things and then trying to decide where to go Yeah, from I kept a thing my kids who are now all in their 20s find amusing. In my office at home, I've got about 200 little tiny A6 notebooks that I used to take around the world with me. As I say, I was a, I directed ads for telly, you know, for beer and you know, banks and all that kind of thing. And I went everywhere in the world. I went to uh, Moscow just after the Berlin Wall came down. I went to, uh, I shot a, an ad in Corpus Christi in Texas on an aircraft carrier. I did a, a job in Kentucky. I went to Iceland. I went to the Australian Outback. I went all over the world. It was fascinating. And everywhere I went, I, I kept these little books and I scribbled things down. But actually, when we started the project, uh, I I'd collected the things I found most interesting. And I remember it was 14 pages of interesting information. And that was all I'd really collected that I'd, I'd actually bothered to write down. And now, uh, well, it's a lot bigger than that. It's uh, We've made about 200 television programs, about 100 radio programs, about 300 podcasts, 400 podcasts. We've done 17 books, and it's all based on this idea that everything you think you know is usually wrong or mistaken or only half true, that kind of thing. Have you reached the point where people might stop you on the street and be like, hey, did you know this and want to share something with you that they don't think that you have already discovered? Yeah, it, it's... Um all the when researchers join us, I mean, they're they're all different ages. I'm the oldest. The youngest, I think, joined us at about. I think he first started writing to us at 15, and we said, "You're too young <laughs> to get a job. Come back when you're a bit older." And he's now about 20 something. But the, when people first come and they discover this way of looking at the world, that everything, without exception, is fascinating. You know, from a panda and a kangaroo to just anything, a pebble. Um, water is one of the most interesting things in the world. We don't think about it. You know, we drink it, we wash in it, we look at it out of the window, and we don't realize what a mysterious substance it is. Scientists will tell you that water is the strangest substance known to science. You know, it's the most 
healing substance and the most corrosive. If you think that water made the Grand Canyon, that's just water. And yet you can't live without it. You know, if you don't get a drink for more than two or three days, you're going to die. So it's that often the most interesting thing is the simple things that strike you uh, with powerfully. So my daughter, for example, my younger daughter's just 22, and she's just finished university, and she said to me the other day, Dad, trees, they're amazing, aren't they? <laughs> and they are amazing, and it's what every five-year-old knows. A tree, even a leaf to a five-year-old, is just miraculous. But you get to a little bit older and you think, oh, leaves, uh, they're things you need to sweep up so they don't mess up the path, aren't they? You don't really look at leaves, really. So the young researchers, um, <laughs> amongst their friends is, you know, they'll be sitting in a bar and somebody will say, oh, there's a thing about an elephant in the newspaper. And they go, oh, I know about elephants. <laughs> I know about elephants. They hear through their feet. You know, they don't drink through their trunks at all. They drink through their mouth because their trunk is their nose. And they go on about elephants, which is something they've just found out, you know. So we all go through that stage, but it sort of calms down. <laughs> and and I think uh, and you just get used to a different way of looking at the world in terms of the way you consume the news, the way you read a newspaper, the way you talk to people. Because one of the fascinating things is if you've just spent a week researching, I don't know, walnuts, and you've become briefly the world expert on walnuts, and they're fascinating, you know, that you, when you talk to someone in the street, you don't think, oh, this is a boring old person, or, you know, this person's very young, they don't know anything, or this person doesn't really speak English properly, they must be an idiot. You tend to listen to people a lot more, because you know if a walnut's that interesting, a human being is many, many times more interesting than that. So, it, And, of course, we all have, as a result, these amazing conversations with people. Because if you take the trouble to talk to the cab driver, you know, who probably doesn't speak very good English. I mean, if you're, you know, certainly in New York, that's a common experience, isn't it? Yes, it is. But I was talking to a guy yesterday. I was out in the country. I had to go to a meeting and I got a cab back into London. And this guy was from Azerbaijan. It's a country I barely know anything about. It's the capital I know is called Baku. And it's an ex-Soviet Union state. And this bloke was marvellous. He was so interesting. He's a British citizen now, but he's uh, an electronic engineer by, by mm. trade. And he's worked on, before he was a cab driver, he used to work on all the famous brands of cars you've ever heard of, you know, Aston Martins and Ferraris and mini, Minis and all that kind of stuff. So this bloke who's driving a cab for a living and is getting, you know, paid, you know, 100 quid to drive me to London or whatever is actually a real expert in something that I know nothing about. The electronics of cars is something I'm absolutely ignorant about. And we had the most fantastic conversation for about an hour. The and that's the thing, you know, that by becoming interested in things, everything becomes more interesting and your life becomes better for it. I know it's a bit philosophical for this time in the morning, <laughs> but it is a sort of solution that everyone who works for... QI, quite interesting as we call it, the company, has a more interesting life. And we all think 
not to put too fine a point on it, it's the sort of solution to everything. Because if you're always interested, you can get by with a lot less money, actually, um, a lot less things. Because there's not many things in life other than a great conversation with friends. I, I can't think of many. I'll be totally honest with you. I came into this interview thinking we'd have a fun interview about trivia, but really, it's a philosophy. And you don't realize that until you start peeling away the layers and what you said, it makes total sense. I don't know why. Maybe it's because it's so early in the morning for you, but I, I, don't, I don't normally uh, uh, start with this. It's only because you asked me, because it was for me, it was a philosophy before it became a job. It was what got me through... You know, advertising can be, it can be enormous fun and it can also be very difficult and things can go wrong and then people get cross with each other, you know, and a shoot goes badly wrong because the weather's difficult or the lake that you were shooting on has dried up and nobody told you. Anything can go wrong, you know. Somebody has an accident, you know, people sometimes get hurt. And in those situations, it's good to have a sort of philosophy that, that keeps you going, the sort of sense of meaning of things and the bigger picture and all that kind of stuff. And it certainly helped me. But no, that for the average consumer, what you see at QAnon in these books is just fun. You know, it's, it's, it's great fun. It's full of interesting information about all sorts of stuff. I suppose we should talk about some of that, shouldn't we, really? <laughs> so uh, one of the things I did notice about the books is that there's this natural order to how things progress. How do you decide where to start? And then I guess it kind of just unfolds from there as the book goes on. So if you're talking about uh, 1,342 QI facts to leave you flabbergasted, is that the one we're talking about? Yes, that's the one I'm talking about. Okay, so here's the thing. It, what it is, is it's 1,342 interesting facts. And for your listeners, they're arranged. They look like little poems on the page, don't they? There's four of them on each page. And they look like a little Japanese haiku or something like that, or a little inspirational quotation, something like that, that you might see on the internet. And they're all interesting, often very funny, and they're linked from one to another. Because one thing we discovered when we did the first one is if you just write a list of interesting facts, it's impossible to digest, and you sort of run out of steam very quickly. So these things just flow from one, uh, one fact to the... Uh, to the next, um, a, a random page in the book. The video game Fallout 4 is set in a post-apocalyptic post world where you get rewarded for returning library books. And the second fact is, in his lifetime, Edgar Allan Poe's best-selling book was a textbook about seashells. Yeah. Ernest Hemingway held the world record for the most marlin caught in a single day. And then Marcel Proust had opium for breakfast. People who drink black coffee are more likely to be psychopaths. Drinking coffee in the Ottoman Empire in the 17th century was punishable by death, and so on. So it just goes from one, each fact is sort of linked to the next in a, in a kind of, almost like playing a game. That's part of the fun of putting the book together, is connecting breakfast to black coffee and from black coffee to the Turkish Empire and from the Turkish Empire 
maybe to Turkish delight and then from delight to something else and so on. It's, uh, it's fun to do, you know, and it's very easy to read. There's a bit here I'm looking at. Steve Jobs was scared of buttons. <laughs> MC Hammer doesn't like hammers. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> the Dalai Lama is frightened of caterpillars. So you get this sort of strange, strange picture of the world, don't you, that everything's odd. You know, the, the book is just so easy to digest. You're constantly just flipping the page. You just want to keep knowing more. In a way, yeah, the, you're making the it, world it, smarter. I, I don't know that we would even claim to do that, but it certainly makes people think more, makes them more open-minded. And I, you know, I'm a comedy producer. That's, that's what I've made my living as. And my job in life is to cheer people up, you know. Um, and some of the stuff that I really like in the book is just funny. So, for example, there's a county in the west of England called Devon, which is, you know, rather nice countryside. And there's a great fact in the book, which is in 1996, two neighbors in Devon spent a year hooting at owls, <laughs> unaware they were actually hooting at each other. So they both got this great, they were very keen on owls, and they just, there weren't any owls <laughs> where they lived. But they, it just, just makes me laugh, it makes you think, you know. Or you've got something like, for Spider-Man to climb buildings the way he does, like a gecko, he would need size 89 feet if it actually works, you know, because he's got sticky feet like a gecko. But they'd have to be absolutely enormous. Do you think you'll ever reach a point where you run out of interesting facts or questions that people want or need to have answered? That's such a good question. That's a brilliant question. And look, you see, you've joined the club. <laughs> you've started to ask questions that people don't ask. And the answer to it is that, you know, when I started doing this properly professionally in about 2002, I honestly thought that within between two and five years, I would basically know everything interesting there was to know in the universe, you know, because most information, you know, whether it's the news or most books in most libraries or bookshops, there's not very much in them and they're not very interesting. And so what you see in our book is a distillation. I mean, there's a 1,300 odd facts in it, but it's drawn from probably a database of maybe seven or eight, 10,000 facts that we've considered. And that is from reading, you know, probably hundreds of books, you know, with hundreds of thousands of facts in, most of which aren't very interesting. There's a kind of, it's a kind of distillation. So the amount of interesting information in the world is much smaller than the most, than all the available information. So we thought, you know, it's only a very small percentage, but we haven't got we haven't got close. There isn't a day that goes by where you come across a, a piece of uh, new information. I'm just looking at what I I read, um, you know, sort of internet feeds every day just to keep abreast of what's going on in the world, and I keep a file of things that I often don't have time to um, have time to process. Uh, at that time, I'll read them later. So, what I've had today is wasabi. Okay, you know, have you ever had sushi? I'm sure you have. Absolutely. 
So that green stuff, almost no sushi chefs in the world use real wasabi anymore. Uh, it's a very rare uh, sort of semi-aquatic herb. They generally use a mixture of horseradish and Chinese mustard, which looks similar and tastes similar, but it's not wasabi. So then this, these are all things I found this morning. And, and there's a long article about the history and the, you know, the sort of botany of wasabi. There's a thing called the Malabar giant squirrel of India, which I've never heard of. It's the most extraordinary thing. It's colored like a rainbow, all different colors. I'd never heard of this animal before. I'll spend some time reading about that later. Then there's Pluto. They've just upgraded Pluto. You know, in 2006, they downgraded Pluto and said it wasn't a planet. And they've now just changed their mind about Pluto, and they've t said it is a planet after all. So there are nine planets in the solar system. And this article says that Pluto is the second most interesting planet in the whole solar system. Did you know that? I'd never heard that before. I didn't hear that before. You know, and it's like, this is just endless. It goes on and on and on. And then, you know, the links from yesterday are the history of camouflage, the world's biggest camera, which was made to take a picture of an entire train in the Wild West. There's uh, Jupiter's got a weird magnetic field that's shaped like a hexagon. There's the history of the flag of Nepal, which is the only flag in the world that's got five sides. You know, it's like, it just, it's just never ending. It's never ending. So I have a final question for you. You've shared a lot of things that you've found interesting, things that might make its way into future books. Of all the time that you've been doing this, is there one particular interesting fact that really has stayed with you through that time? Lisa, that is, that is you, that's your second really difficult question. I mean, there are just so many. I mean, I just have to pick one at random, really. I think uh, one thing that really surprised me um, when I read it, which is in the book, which is that computers can't generate random numbers. You'd mm -hmm. think that would be a thing a computer would find very easy, but they can't. And you have to have a sort of artificial random number creator. If you really want ran random numbers, you'd be better picking them out of a hat with your own hand. We think, don't we, that computers can kind of do everything and that they can't do the simplest thing that any child can do, a random number. A computer can't do that. And I find, for some reason, that really sticks in my mind. And then another one out of nature is that trees sleep at night to rest their branches. Huh. Isn't that sweet? Do you guys ever sit around and play Trivial Pursuit and see who... I mean, I can imagine that would be an incredibly fierce competition. Well, it, we're all different. You know, that James, who's um, one of the writers of the book, he's our senior researcher, and... Uh, he used to be an accountant for a chain of bars up in the north, and he's very, very bright. And But he is a professional quizzer. He's really good at it because he knows all that stuff about sport and science and all that kind of thing. Most of us, weirdly, if you have a QI, you know, pub quiz team, we tend to come second. We don't <laughs> usually win because... We know a lot of stuff that nobody else knows, but it's not something usually the person asking the quiz knows. Ah. So we know the most difficult questions in the pub quiz. We don't know the ones that everybody's aware of. You know, we don't, 
we don't usually have time to watch soaps, for example. So not very good at popular culture. Most people in the office are not particularly sporty. So they they miss all those questions. So no, no, we're not we're not especially good at it, and we don't claim. None of us claim to be very good at anything. We're just very interested. We are. I think you just shared an interesting fact with me about the the QI team. Thank you. <laughs> well, John Lloyd, it has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to me. It's been such a pleasure, and my love to New York, one of my favorite cities in the world. Oh, thanks so much. Those of you with a good memory might remember that last week I teased a different book than any of the ones we just featured. We had to move some things around, but fear not. Next week, we'll take you on the wild ride through the White House. Until then, keep track of us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. And feel free to reach out with your questions, comments, and complaints. Hopefully, there aren't too many of those at books at WCBS 880.com. That's books at WCBS 880.com.